Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 113, Boston Standard Time. Hi, I'm Jake. Nikki's out this week, but I'm going to discuss an era when Boston treated telling time as serious business. With New Year's Eve comes the ball drop in Times Square at the stroke of midnight. But in the late 1800s, Boston dropped a ball every day to mark the stroke of noon. That time ball, along with telegraphic signals and fire alarm bells, announced the exact time to the public, during a period when the exact time was critical to navigation on the high seas and to safety on the newfangled railroads. With ultra-precise clocks made by local jewelers and true astronomical time announced daily by the Harvard Observatory, Boston time became the de facto standard for a wide swath of the country, long before time zones were officially proposed or adopted. But before I talk about Boston Standard Time, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a new release by Brian Coleman. Buy Me Boston is a collection of local ads and flyers dating from the 1960s to the 1980s. The publisher says, Buy Me Boston is a unique time-traveling journey back to a city that exists only in the fond memories of longtime denizens. Whether you patronize these establishments and happenings the first time around, or just want to know more about our unique town and the people whose energy and creativity fuels it, this book guarantees smiles with the turn of every new page. Some of the material is from the underground, while some is decidedly mainstream. Like the full-page ad taken out by the Filene's department store to announce that all their stores would close on November 25, 1963, in honor of President Kennedy's death. It's the stuff from the other end of the dial that interests me most. Hand-lettered flyers for 80s punk shows, ads for strippers and call girls from the back pages of the Phoenix, window cards from a black barbershop in the disco era, porn theater marquees, the debut of a new kids' show called The Electric Company, and much more. There are flyers for political organizers of all stripes, from anti-war marches to a new right organization that would probably be at home with today's alt-right. There's even an ad for the grand opening of the Rathskeller on September 25, 1974. Coleman is apparently a collector himself, and he's also scoured the collections of the David Bieber Pop Culture Archives, the UMass Hip Hop Archives, galleries, record labels, and other local collectors. Why ads and flyers? An author's note says, The thing I have always loved about advertisements, including event flyers and posters, is that they are the most direct and honest way that any undertaking, whether it's a theater troupe, a band, a restaurant, or a hair salon, has to communicate with the public. Advertisements are not mediated by journalists or editors. They contain exactly what the owner wants to say. Sometimes ads are a mess. Sometimes they're beautiful or clever. There is no right way to place an ad, but I've always respected anyone who tries. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a seminar at the Massachusetts Historical Society. In this cultural moment, Samuel Seabury is probably best known as the worried-sounding character behind The Farmer Refuted, where he sings that, This Congress does not speak for me, just before King George III steals the scene in Act I of the Hamilton musical. In his own time, however, Seabury was much more than just an outspoken loyalist who verbally sparred with Alexander Hamilton in a series of pamphlets. He was a Yale graduate and a prominent and well-respected minister in New York's Church of England. After the American Revolution, he led the transformation of the American Church of England into the denomination we know as Episcopalian. 
Central to this transition was the role of the King of England as the head of the church. As newly minted Americans, New Yorkers like Samuel Seabury could no longer take an oath of allegiance to the king, as the Church of England required. He went to Aberdeen to study the rites of the Scottish Episcopal Church, and then came home to serve as America's first bishop. During his bishopric, he implemented a new liturgy that would be consistent with the convictions of his co-religionists, while upholding the patriotic values of his new nation. On Thursday, January 8th, this critical period will be the subject of a seminar at the MHS. Brent Sirota of North Carolina State University will be presenting his paper on The Consecration of Samuel Seabury and the Crisis of Atlantic Episcopacy, 1782-1807. Here's how the MHS website describes the event. Samuel Seabury's consecration in 1784 signaled a transformation in the organization of American Protestantism. After more than a century of resistance to the office of bishops, American Methodists and Episcopalians and Canadian Anglicans all established some form of Episcopal superintendency after the Peace of Paris. This paper considers how the making of American Episcopacy and the controversies surrounding it betrayed a lack of consensus regarding the relationship between the church, state, and civil society in the Protestant Atlantic. The event is free and open to the public, but an RSVP is required. We'll link to the event page in the show notes this week so you can register if you plan to attend. And with that, it's time for this week's main topic. Are you planning to watch the ball drop in Times Square tomorrow night? Or, if you're listening to this later in the week, did you tune in to watch the ball drop? In the small, rural town where I grew up, there really wasn't anything to do on New Year's Eve, but my parents would let me stay up late and watch the ball drop every year. Of course, now that I'm pushing 40... Staying in and watching the ball drop is starting to sound like a pretty good way to spend a night again. When the giant illuminated ball reaches the bottom of its 141-foot drop, it's officially the new year. It's a very visual symbol of a landmark time. According to the official website of the Times Square Ball, the tradition began in 1907 and has been repeated every year, except during wartime precautions in 1942 and 43. The website says, The first New Year's Eve ball, made of iron and wood and adorned with 125-watt light bulbs, was 5 feet in diameter and weighed 700 pounds. It was built by a young immigrant metalworker named Jacob Starr, and for most of the 20th century, the company he founded, sign maker Artcraft Strauss, was responsible for lowering the ball. In 1920, a 400-pound ball made entirely of wrought iron replaced the original. In 1955, the iron ball was replaced by an aluminum ball weighing a mere 150 pounds. This aluminum ball remained unchanged until the 1980s, when red light bulbs and the addition of a green stem converted the ball into an apple for the I Love New York marketing campaign from 1981 to 1988. After seven years, the traditional glowing white ball with white light bulbs and without the green stem returned to brightly light the sky above Times Square. In 1995, the ball was upgraded with aluminum skin, rhinestones, strobes, and computer controls, but the aluminum ball was lowered for the last time in 1988. There have been two more designs since then, including the most recent iteration, a, quote, permanent big ball weighing nearly 6 tons and 12 feet in diameter. The 2,688 Waterford Crystal Triangles are illuminated by 32,256 Philips LEDs. What you might not know is that a similar time ball used to drop every day at noon right here in Boston. 
in his book Marking Modern Times, A History of Clocks, Watches, and Other Timekeepers in American Life, Alexis McCrossan described the scene. In the spring of 1878, a Boston clockmaker's daybook noted, The time ball on top of the building of the Equitable Life Insurance Company at the corner of Milk and Devonshire Street was dropped for the first time today. Harvard College's observatory sent the time signal gratis, the United States Army's signal service operated the mechanism each day, and Equitable Life Insurance paid for the apparatus. In a rapidly industrializing nation, people were beginning to demand more accuracy in timekeeping than the layman could get from observing when the sun was directly overhead, or from listening to the local church bells chime. Factories, clipper ships, and especially railroads all demanded accurate time, and in particular synchronous time, where everybody kept the same clock. Time balls were a very public way to tell an entire city what time it was, and they had to be accurate enough to literally set your watch to. In a 2000 article in the journal Material Culture Review, McCrossin dug deeper into what these time balls were and where they came from. During the decades after the Civil War, time balls joined the array of newly erected monuments across the nation, many of which embodied the cultural, commercial, and political aspirations of Americans. Typically perched atop the highest point in the central part of a city, usually a tower, these globes with metal ribs and canvas covers of various colors were rigged to an electric pulse, which caused them to drop at noon. The daily, except Sunday in most cases, dropping of the ball was a public event, and on occasion of error or failure to drop, notice was published in city papers. In this respect, Boston was far from unique. Starting in the 1830s, time balls were installed around the English-speaking world. First in England, then the U.S., and then Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. They were less common in other areas, but time balls eventually came to Chile, Poland, and probably other countries around the world. An article published by the Woods Hole Observatory, itself eventually the site of a time ball, describes the earliest time balls. In the 1820s, various visual means, flags, gunsmoke, searchlights, rockets, were tried in different ports to delineate some pre-selected moment in time. But it was not until late in 1829 that an experimental time ball, hoisted to the top of a mast and dropped at a precise time, was tried at Portsmouth, England, and found satisfactory. Time balls were subsequently installed at Liverpool and Greenwich, England. Now, the reason all these time balls were getting built, and the reason keeping accurate time was important, all comes down to sailing ships. In the days before GPS, they used a system known as celestial navigation to plot their positions on the open ocean using the stars. My stepfather was a navigator in the U.S. Navy during the Vietnam era, and he always likes to joke about the time when he used celestial navigation to steer the ship from San Diego to the Philippines, and he got a medal because they were only 100 miles off course. By the 1960s, that was apparently seen as a pretty good error rate for such an ancient navigational art. The basic principles of celestial navigation have been known since the days of Ptolemy, the Greek mathematician who lived almost 2,000 years ago. To find your position on a map, you need to know both your latitude and your longitude. The latitude is how far north or south you are relative to the equator, with lines of latitude circling the Earth parallel to the equator while longitude is your position east or west around the globe, with lines of latitude circling the Earth in the other direction, all intersecting with one another at the North and South Poles. Because the system was laid out during the height of the British Empire, the prime meridian, the line of longitude that everything is based on, runs through Greenwich, England. 
Finding your latitude, assuming you have the training and the necessary reference tables, is actually pretty simple. The navigator simply has to measure the angle of the sun, stars, or other celestial bodies above the horizon when they reach their highest point. Take the North Star, for example. It remains within one degree of true north, so all you need to know is when it has reached its highest elevation of the night. When it's there, look directly ahead at the horizon, then tilt your head back until you're looking at the North Star. If you tilted your head back at a 15-degree angle, your latitude is approximately 15 degrees north. Navigational tables and manuals give the calculations for using the sun or another star. And of course, a navigator far out at sea will use a device called a sextant to shoot the precise angles, rather than just tipping their head back and guessing. Longitude gets more tricky. Calculating it also relies on measuring the angle of the North Star's highest point. For longitude, though, a second angle must be taken, to a star directly on the eastern or western horizon. Again, navigational tables give the calculation to turn these two numbers into a longitude. However, in this case, there's a catch. The Earth spins at 1,000 miles an hour, so the navigational tables have to be adjusted for the local time. For this to work, there had to be a reliable way to know the time, so sailors couldn't practically calculate longitude until an accurate chronometer was invented in 1761. When a ship was in port, they could use the very public, very visible tool of a dropping time ball to calibrate their chronometers in turn, ensuring that they would be able to navigate accurately when they were out of sight of land. We should mention that the navigational calculations and tables that sailors used were all created by a Massachusetts man who spent the last 15 years of his career in Boston. Nathaniel Bowditch was born in Salem in 1773 to a family of modest means. At 12, he became an indentured servant to a merchant, serving as a bookkeeper, and discovered that he had a knack for math. Saying knack really undersells it, because he managed to teach himself algebra, calculus, navigation, and theoretical astronomy over the next five years or so. He also learned Latin and French so he could read the latest scientific papers and journals. From 1795 to 1802, he went on four sea voyages, during which he detected and corrected the many errors in the -the state-of-the-art navigational manual in common use at that time. He went on to completely rework the standard navigation tables from scratch and to put in place methods of calculation that any crew member could learn. Finally, in 1802, he published Bowditch's American Practical Navigator, which remained the standard instructional text for navigation for over 150 years. It was said that on his fifth voyage after its publication, every crewman, even the cook, could work out their position from Bowditch's charts and methods. But Bowditch's calculations, like those in every navigational text since 1761, relied on an accurate chronometer that kept accurate time. To know the accurate time, port cities began installing time balls in the mid-19th century. Following the lead of the Greenwich Observatory, a time ball was set up at the Naval Observatory on the banks of the Potomac River in Washington, D.C. in 1845. However, as Ian Bartke noted in Selling the True Time, 19th century timekeeping in America, it was of limited practical use. The Naval Observatory's signal ball did not serve as an aid to navigation, for few, if any, vessels plying the Potomac River carried chronometers. Navy officials, however, wrapped it in all the trappings of a navigational device in their budget requests and public documents. Actually, the time ball was an innovation in public timekeeping, giving residents what they lacked— 
an authoritative source by which all other timekeepers, clocks and watches, could be regulated. The time ball that was installed in Boston in 1878 served both practical and ceremonial purposes. At first, proponents argued that the time ball should be placed on the most prominent and important building in town, the State House, perched right on top of Beacon Hill. In the pre-skyscraper era, it was visible from far and wide. However, as Alexis McCrossan notes, some critics were worried that it would not be visible enough. Around mid-century, a prominent Boston chronometer maker pointed out that were a time ball placed on the cupola of the State House, only a small number of city inhabitants would see the ball drop. Furthermore, most navigators in port, if they could see the ball, could little afford to prepare and watch for the signal. A blog published by Brown University's Ladd Observatory describes what the first time ball to be lofted over Boston looked like. The ball was four feet in diameter and made of rolled plate copper. It was raised on a staff 20 feet high, giving a clear 16-foot drop. A brake mechanism was used to stop the ball after it had dropped to within six feet of the bottom. The time signal to release the ball was relayed from the standard clock at Harvard College Observatory by telegraph wire to the ball on the roof of the Equitable Building. A ball of this size could be seen from about four miles away. The Equitable Building had been newly constructed after Boston's 1872 Great Fire on the corner of Milk and Devonshire Streets across from the main post office. The massive insurance company building in a prominent location was visible far across the harbor, making it perfect for the newly standardized time signal. A late 19th century author extols the virtues of the Boston time ball. The observatory of Harvard College, in connection with the United States Army Signal Service, drops a time ball for the benefit of Boston Harbor, and perhaps there is no one public signal of the Harvard Time Service which is received with more public favor than this, not only by the commanders of vessels lying in the harbor, but by the many people living on the surrounding highlands, and numerous factories and institutions from which the signal is visible. The need for a new, universal timekeeping standard became apparent in the 1840s, as railroad networks grew and began to cover wider geographic regions. The long stretches between stations were often covered by only a single track, with trains traveling in opposite directions needing to share. While a northbound train was stopped at a station, the southbound train would pass by on the single track. When an eastbound train was scheduled to pass, the westbound train would turn out into a siding. To make all this work, the railroads required very precise timetables governing which train needed to be where at what time. To be able to follow a timetable, everyone involved in railroad business needed to keep very accurate time. The potential problems that could arise when the time was off at any point in the chain were illustrated by a terrible crash on the Providence and Worcester Railroad in 1853, as described by Bartke. On August 12th, a terrible collision on the Providence and Worcester brought railroad timekeeping once again under the public scrutiny. At 7.20 a.m., a P&W train left Providence bound for Worcester. Meanwhile, the P&W's crowded excursion train, running south toward Providence, arrived late at Valley Falls, a town just north of the city. Checking his time, this train's neophyte conductor concluded that he still had four minutes in which to reach the double-track section of rail, three-quarters of a mile away. He signaled his train to move on down a section of curving track. Out of sight around the bend, the up train waited while its engineer observed the five minutes allotted for the excursion train to cross the switch onto the double track. 
Five minutes passed. A guard raised the signal ball, giving the up train the right to move through the switch. The conductor called, All aboard! The engine driver waited a minute or so, and then started the train forward, passing through the switch to the single track. The two engines struck less than a minute later. The impact of the collision was so great that some of the excursion train's wooden passenger cars telescoped, ramming and tearing through adjacent cars. In all, 14 passengers were killed and 23 were injured. An investigation concluded that the conductor of the excursion train was using a watch that ran over a minute and a half slow. He was arrested and eventually tried for manslaughter. The immediate aftermath of the accident was photographed, and the grisly pictures were published in newspapers. Soon, people all across New England were clamoring for improved accuracy in timekeeping. Luckily, another technological innovation had been developed alongside the railroads that allowed synchronization of clocks across a wide-reaching geographical area. From the very moment the telegraphs were developed, they were used for comparing times, as Bartke describes. On Friday, the 24th of May, 1844, the American government's 40-mile line along the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad's right-of-way from Baltimore to Washington opened for trials. After transmitting an Old Testament comment, What hath God wrought? Operators sent additional messages to awe and entertain those assembled at the Capitol. What is your time? was the day's fifth message. From that moment on, Americans were captivated by the near-instantaneous transmission of time to distant places. Telegraphs gave people the means to set their clocks to an agreed-upon time across a region, rather than simply calculating the moment when the sun reached its highest point for the day and calling that noon. In Boston, the agreed-upon time was set by the astronomers at Harvard Observatory. In 1849, the president of the observatory was also the best clockmaker in Boston. William Bond's telescopes were used to take the astronomical measurements from which an exact time could be calculated. William Bond's chronometers were used at first to carry the time from the observatory to his watch and clock shop near downtown Crossing. And the time at William Bond's shop was used as the basis of standard times for Boston-based railways. Technically, the time at the Harvard Observatory in Cambridge was 16 seconds earlier than astronomical time at the watch shop in Boston. Then, when the railroads began standardizing time in 1849, they settled on a time two minutes ahead of Boston, to coincide with a meridian about 30 miles west of the city. Because they were the paying customer, the railroads won, and Bond began setting his clocks to match the railroad time. In 1841, a telegraph wire linked the observatory to the shop, allowing the instant transmission of the time without having to carry a clock back and forth. In 1852, the observatory telegraph was wired into the citywide fire alarm telegraph system, allowing anyone in town to determine accurate time. The bells of the many churches in Boston would finally begin chiming more or less in sync, instead of spread out over five minutes or more as they had in the past. When the time ball was introduced in 1878, it too used the telegraph signal from the Harvard Observatory. The procedure used in dropping Boston's time ball every day was described by B.M. Purcell of the U.S. Army Signal Corps in Winslow Upton's report on time signals. The rules by which the display of the ball is governed are as follows. Number 1. At 11.55 a.m., the ball is to be at half-mast. Number 2. At 11.58 a.m., the ball is to be at the top of the mast. Number 3. 
At 12 o'clock, 0 minutes and 0 seconds, exact noon, Boston State House time, the ball will fall. Number 4. Should the ball for any reason fail to drop at 12 o'clock sharp, and the trouble is of a nature that can be readily removed, the ball will remain at the top of the mast and be dropped at 12.05. And if the ball should by accident fall before 12 o'clock, it will immediately be raised again and dropped at 12.05. If for any reason it becomes necessary to lower the ball, it will be done very slowly, so that shipmasters may not mistake the movement for the noon signal. By 1870, the railroads had given up on the two-minute delay, and they adopted the true time broadcast from the Harvard Observatory to Bond's watch shop as their standard, which would be known across the New England rail system as Boston Standard Time. It was America's first time zone, but as a 2011 article in the Harvard Gazette put it, instead of covering the large geographic swaths that we're familiar with today, that first time zone followed the rail lines, creating a spider web of towns across the region whose clocks were all synchronized to the Harvard Observatory. The adoption of Boston Standard Time was good for much of New England, but the rest of the country continued to struggle with different times in every town. As the Woods Hole Observatory points out in an article, Initially, noon meant the local apparent noon, which varied with the location's longitude up to three and a half hours from coast to coast. Each major city had its own local time. When the railroads came, the need for a common time standard became much more obvious. In Pittsburgh, for example, there were six different time standards for train arrivals and departures. A traveler from Maine to California would change his watch some 20 times along the way. We'll include an 1879 railway guide in this week's show notes, showing the dozens of local time standards in cities across the nation. Astronomer Leonard Waldo, arguing in favor of nationally standardized time zones in an 1880 essay in the North American Review, describes how the region-wide adoption of Boston Standard Time was preferable to the hodgepodge of time standards scattered around the rest of the country. Outside of New England, there has been scarcely any concert of action among the railroads, and there are about 70 different standards of time in use. The result of the experiment in New England fairly justifies the belief that, where the railroads in the rest of the United States approached on this question, they would combine to adopt the standards of time now used by a few of the great centers of population. The principal systems now in operation comprise the United States Naval Observatory System, which extends its distribution of Washington time to Chicago and the West, the Harvard and Yale systems, which distribute respectively Boston and New York time over New England, the Allegheny Observatory System, which is concerned chiefly with the Pennsylvania Railroad, and the more local services emanating from the observatories at Albany, Chicago, Cincinnati, and St. Louis. Unfortunately, except in New England, the distribution of the time of an observatory has not always resulted in the adoption of that time for general use, and it is often the case that the local jewelers who are the guardians of town clocks, and local time as well, will convert the time received by telegraph into their own local time, and thus make it inconveniently different from the time in use in any other city of their region. Having described the chaos of competing local time standards, he introduces a scheme proposed by a Professor Benjamin Pierce that prescribed four standardized time zones for the country. Each zone would be exactly an hour apart and cover roughly 15 degrees of longitude. They would be centered on the 75th, 90th, 105th, and 120th meridians. Waldo said, 
Its great merit consists in there being no greater difference than half an hour in any part of the country between the true local time and the arbitrary standard, an amount but slightly greater than exists between Greenwich and the west of England. In passing from the Ohio into the Mississippi Valley, for instance, the traveler merely changes his watch by one hour, and the merchant, remembering that Pacific time is three hours slow of Atlantic time, knows that it is half past two in San Francisco when it is half past five in New York. The railroads, hoping to avoid government regulation, were quick to pick up the idea of standardized time. They began planning for standard railway time in 1881, with it going into effect in 1883. To make sure that the new time zones were accepted, they had to be used by cities, not just railroads. A man named William F. Allen was tasked with convincing municipalities to adopt the new system. In Marking Modern Times, Alexis McCrossan describes the challenge Allen faced here in Boston. Apparently, railroad managers were worried about whether observatory time services would provide meridian time. The sense among Boston railroaders, for instance, was that the Harvard Observatory would stay with the local time. As Allen put it, there is some difficulty in securing the acquiescence of the roads in the vicinity of Boston unless the time ball can be dropped on the 75th meridian time. Like the general superintendent of the Boston and Albany Railroad, regional railroad superintendents wanted the time as furnished by the observatories to agree with railroad time. Allen reassured them that the time balls at various points in Boston, New York, and elsewhere would be regulated in accordance with the new standards. Indeed, this would happen, according to Allen, upon the same day that the new standard went into effect. Allen was sure that all of the New England railway companies would gladly conform to the proposed system once arrangements were made for the time ball to drop according to the new standard. So he proceeded to lobby anyone who had influence over the Harvard Observatory, which was where the time signal for the Boston time ball originated. Foremost was Professor Edward Pickering, its director, who was out of the country for the summer. You may recall the name Edward Pickering from our podcast about the women who worked as human computers at Harvard Observatory, making many important astronomical discoveries in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It was Pickering who first decided to begin hiring women, after getting angry with his male assistants and shouting, My Scotch maid could do a better job. Long story short, she did. McCrossin continues, When Pickering finally returned from Europe the second week of October, he agreed to consider the change, which in turn persuaded Boston city authorities to take up the question of adopting the new standard for the city. In early November, just a week before the railroads would inaugurate standard time, the Harvard Observatory and Boston City Council resolved to adopt 75th meridian time. The adjustment for Boston was notable, but easily adjusted to, as the 1906 Harper's Encyclopedia of American History explained. The true local time of any place is slower or faster than the standard time, as the place is east or west of the time meridian. Thus, the true local time at Boston, Mass., is 16 minutes faster than the eastern standard time, while at Buffalo, New York, it is 16 minutes slower, the 75th meridian time being halfway between Boston and Buffalo. Starting at noon on September 18, 1883, the nation officially set its clocks to conform to the four new time zones. Professor Peter Gallison, director of Harvard's collection of historic scientific instruments, told the Harvard Gazette about people's reservations with the new system. If you live at the edge of a time zone, when it's noon, the sun is not in the highest point in the sky. 
We don't know or even care about that anymore, but they knew it good and well when all this was happening. Many people didn't like it at all. They didn't like being told by New York or Boston that it was noon when they could see that it was not noon. Despite early grumbling, the new time standard stuck. Boston was now officially part of the Eastern Time Zone, but it seems like the older terminology was still in use for a while. For example, here's a question from the geography section of the 1887 Boston Grammar School diploma exam. If you were at San Francisco and your watch indicated Boston Standard Time, how would it differ from the clocks of San Francisco also indicating Standard Time? The introduction of telegraphic time service and especially wiring a noon bell directly into the city's fire alarm system, spelled doom for the Boston time ball. If you could get an instant notification from any fire alarm box, why would you wait around with bated breath, watching the mast on the Equitable Building with unblinking eyes, waiting to mark the split second the ball began to drop? McCrossan makes it clear that the time balls were of limited utility in the first place. The officer in charge of Boston's hydrographic office found in 1886 that a prominent member of the Chamber of Commerce had never heard of the time ball, and those city officials who were in the know did not make use of it since bells are struck all over the city at noon by the Cambridge Observatory. He further reported that prominent shipping people assured him that the ball is seldom, if ever, made use of by the captains of vessels for rating chronometers. Captains of ships themselves confirmed this report, stating, that they seldom see the ball and never think of rating their chronometers by it. Nevertheless, enough people still relied on the time ball to keep it going. Whether this reflected the needs of sailors and residents, or simply affection for the public ritual of timekeeping, Boston's time ball persisted into the 20th century. In fact, it was replaced and upgraded at the beginning of the century. An article from September 17, 1902 in the Jewelers Circular and Horological Review describes the new installation. The new time ball about to be installed at Boston, Mass. The time ball to be placed on the top of the Ames Building, a 13-story structure at Washington and Court Streets, arrived in Boston yesterday with part of the machinery on the steamer Howard. Work of installing the ball on top of the Ames Building, commanding a view of the harbor and other points, will begin at once. The ball will be operated by a direct wire from the hydrographic office at Washington, connected with the local branch office. A backup chronometer will be kept in his office at the Custom House and will be regulated by the Washington Time. In case of wire trouble between here and Washington, this timepiece can be used for dropping the ball until communications are established with headquarters. When the apparatus is in place and the wires connected, the ball will be hoisted each day by an employee of the hydrographic office, perhaps 10 or 15 minutes before the noon hour. Either Mr. Richardson or one of his assistants will then follow the time as announced by clicks on the wire from Washington. These will cease 10 seconds before the noon hour, then the switch connecting the Washington wire with the shorter one between the Custom House and the Ames building will be turned on. Exactly on the stroke of 12 in the Naval Observatory in Washington will come the tick that causes the time ball to fall from the pole on which it is placed into the drum below. The direct connection to the Naval Observatory indicates how centralized and standardized timekeeping was by that time. Then in 1924, a radio time beacon was introduced, instantly rendering time balls completely anachronistic. Radio signals could carry an accurate time instantly over hundreds of miles. They could be repeated more than once a day at noon, and they could be detected by ships at sea far out of sight of any land-based time ball. Around the world, and here in Boston, Time balls went into a slow decline, 
as neglect and indifference led nearly all to go out of service in the first decades of the 20th century. There are said to be at least 60 time balls still in existence today, though only a few are still operational. As far as I know, the nearest time ball that's still standing is at Plymouth Light on Gurnet Point in Plymouth. It has a mast and time ball, but the ball is permanently parked in the down position. The Titanic Monument in Manhattan incorporates a time ball, and it was dropped every day at noon until 1967. But when the monument was moved in 1968, the ball was fixed permanently at the top of the mast. The U.S. Naval Observatory in Washington carried on dropping a time ball at noon until 1936, and then in 1999 they installed a new one to mark the millennium. Down in New Zealand, an 1876 time ball in Littleton was operational until the building housing it was destroyed in a 2010 earthquake. The community is currently raising funds to get it back in service. One of the original time balls was installed at the Greenwich Observatory, on the Greenwich Meridian, home of Greenwich Mean Time, in Greenwich, England, in 1833. Today, the bright red ball atop Flamsteed House at the observatory is part of the Royal Museum of Greenwich but it is still operational, and it still drops at 1 p.m. every day, unless it's too windy. In fact, the Royal Museums of Greenwich just announced that they're looking for a new curator of navigation. So if you have a postgraduate degree and a background in public history, you could wind up in charge of the time ball, along with many other collections. The closest your humble hosts have ever been to a time ball was at the San Francisco Maritime National Historic Park. In the Park Service Museum overlooking Hyde Street Pier, there's a display on the city's time balls, starting with the original installed on Telegraph Hill in 1852. In the corner of the room stands a section of mast complete with a metal ball about four feet in diameter. This was San Francisco's later time ball, installed at the Fairmont Hotel on Knob Hill in 1909. We'll have a picture of it in this week's show notes. Now, we know that our listeners love it when we make political comments. No, that's a lie. In fact, the most common feedback we get is that we should cut out the political comments. Well, I'm going there. I'm going to make a deeply controversial, fringe political statement. In the winter, sunset in Boston is too dang early. When this episode airs on December 30th, sunset will fall at 420. But two weeks ago, the sunset in Boston was at its earliest for the year, 411 p.m., Friends, citizens, my fellow Bostonians, we shouldn't have to live like this. The eastern time zone is just too wide, and we're too far to the north and east. And as bad as it is for us, it could be worse. Up in the former eastern counties of Massachusetts, known today as Maine, sunset in Machias on December 11th was 3.49 p.m. Compare that to the other extreme. On the same day, in the same time zone, The sunset was at 5.03 in Ishpeming, Michigan. That's an hour and a quarter difference. In 2014, the Boston Globe took up this cause on its editorial page. A look at the map suggests we're currently in the wrong time zone entirely. Boston lies so far east in the eastern time zone that during standard time, our earliest nightfall of the year is a mere 27 minutes later than in Anchorage. When it comes to daylight, we can do much better than Alaska. Fortunately for us, there's already a time zone one hour ahead of Eastern, the Atlantic time zone. Switching to Atlantic Standard Time, essentially keeping the clock an hour forward all year, 
wouldn't be nearly as radical a change as it sounds. As it is, we're actually only on Eastern Standard Time for about four months a year, from early November until early March. In the spring, summer, and early fall, we're on Eastern Daylight Time, which is the same as Atlantic Standard Time. The line between Atlantic and Eastern Time now runs east of Maine, including Nova Scotia and the Canadian Maritime Provinces. In a perfect world, we would redraw the line to roughly follow the Champlain-Hudson Corridor. The New England states, Montreal, and Quebec City would all fall within the newly expanded Atlantic Time Zone. New York State, Ottawa, and Toronto would remain in Eastern Time. Imagine my delight when a special state commission on the Commonwealth's time zone was appointed in 2017 to study whether it makes sense for Massachusetts to remain in the Eastern Time Zone. Their final report said that moving to Atlantic Time would have benefits in economic development, worker productivity, reduced traffic and workplace accidents, lower crime, and reduced energy costs. Their findings stated, Based on its research and findings, and after weighing the costs and benefits associated with the observance of time in Massachusetts, the Commission believes that under certain circumstances, the Commonwealth could make a data-driven case for moving to the Atlantic time zone year-round, effectively observing year-round daylight savings time. Although there are appreciable costs associated with making this change, on balance, the Commission finds that doing so could have positive benefits— that largely stem from the absence of a spring transition to daylight savings time and the additional hour of winter evening daylight. Of course, this recommendation came with strings attached. One concern was for school children. Without a switch to standard time, they'll be left waiting for the bus or walking to school in the dark through most of the winter months. The commission recommended moving to a later school opening time if we switch time zones. The other concern is for pure practicality. Clearly, Massachusetts couldn't go it alone. Our state's so small that it wouldn't make sense to be a tiny island of Atlantic time surrounded by a sea of Eastern time. On this front, the Commission concluded that Massachusetts should only move to year-round daylight savings time if a majority of the other New England states also do so. So, how do things look from a regional perspective? Lawmakers in Rhode Island debated legislation to move the state to Atlantic time in 2016, but it didn't really go anywhere. In early 2017, the New Hampshire House passed a bill stating, This bill provides that, if Massachusetts adopts Atlantic Standard Time, the state of New Hampshire shall also adopt Atlantic Standard Time, the effect of which shall be to make daylight savings time permanent in both states. The legislation, however, died in the state Senate. At about the same time, legislation was introduced in the Connecticut House and Senate that would provide for year-round daylight saving time in Connecticut and allow Connecticut to maximize additional daylight in the evening in order for residents, employers, and businesses to get the most beneficial use of their time as a way to increase productivity and create additional consumer opportunities for Connecticut residents. The bill did not pass. That same summer, the Maine House passed an act to opt out of federal daylight saving time and to ask the United States Secretary of Transportation to place the state in the Atlantic time zone. It was contingent on both New Hampshire and Massachusetts switching to Atlantic time, but it never got that far because that bill also failed in the state Senate. Vermont hasn't introduced legislation specific to moving to Atlantic time, But in the spring of 2017, their legislature did debate a bill that would demand Congress abolish daylight saving time. Change doesn't happen overnight, 
But the idea of moving New England to Atlantic time has gone from the realm of cranks and crazies to what looks like a nascent movement, and Boston's leading the way again. It'll be a long process, but it seems possible now for the first time. Perhaps if we're successful, one day we can name our new time zone Boston Standard Time. To learn more about the history of Boston Standard Time, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 113. We'll have photos and diagrams of the Boston Time Ball and the Equitable Building, as well as all the sources we quoted from today. We'll share railroad timetables from before and after the adoption of standardized time zones, editorials about the proposal to move New England to Atlantic time, and the job listing for the Curator of Navigation at the Greenwich Observatory. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Buy Me Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might just play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. That's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.